Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Today's show is all about commercial conversions and sasses. Yeah, we're getting sassy. Today's guest, Mark, has an illustrious career in corporate, but then he also has an illustrious career in property since he quit his corporate role. Now, this episode is designed to give you an insight into SaaS pensions and how you can use them you know, from yourself or for yourself, working with other people, and also into commercial conversions, the kind of things you should be looking for, the risks you should be mitigating, and I suppose where to start. And we also look at Mark's story and some of the deals he has done. So if you want to get in touch with him, please use the show notes. All of his links are there. Just to let you know, my next book is being released very, very soon. I mean, it might be awkward, actually. By the time you hear this, it might be out. So yeah, just keep an eye on my Instagram. Mark, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you, Tej. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. This is, you know, I love talking to people after I've kind of sort of seen them online or in this case, you know, read their book because... I think you learn so much about someone and their, I don't know, their business style and their character from, you know, especially from a book, but also from seeing what they're doing online and how they're talking about things. So I only recently finished reading your commercial to residential conversions book, which I have to say for anyone interested in it, get it. Like it is, you know, you've put on the cover, it's the essential manual for property developers. And I have to say, I mean, it is, it is one of the the thickest books in property um, and it is full of content. So I have to say, yeah, thanks for writing such a good book. But today we are going to talk about commercial to residential, but we're also going to talk about new builds and we're going to touch on SAS, which is something that I know you've also written a few books on and you have used very effectively to raise a lot of money, which we'll get into. But before you were doing property, um, you were doing something pretty interesting. What was that? Yeah, so I retired at the age of 45 um, after spending 25 years in corporate life. Uh, and just to go back over that corporate life, um, I started my life as an engineer at the age of 16, actually. I was setting up profile boards, RB22 drag lines, and doing lots of engineering stuff in my mid-teens. Did my degree uh, in construction management at university, and then went out and I just got involved, moved from engineering into business management very quick and spent 25 years blessed to be running very large organizations, huge scale, uh, global, uh, resilient infrastructure rollouts, data centers, power stations in four continents, 33 countries around the world. And to give you an idea of the sense of scale of some of those developments, they'd be anywhere from 10 million to a billion US dollars. They were absolutely enormous. And of course, that means uh, you have a clear focus on risk and you know all the things that you need as a property developer, in in my humble opinion. So you know, over that corporate life, I also was a uh, troubleshooter. So uh, I would be the one that got the the call from the chairman to say, "Could you just?" And that would could be anything from uh, investigating a, a sad fatality through to literally jumping on a plane to to Australia at four hours' notice. 
and trying to unravel some pretty horrendous situations out there. So I'd be the one, that, the go-to person to go and sort problems out. And I guess I was able to use that to good effect to help solve problems or help uh, uh, make sure that problems didn't come about in the first instance. So yeah, at the age of uh, 44, 45, I decided that, you know, um, the more successful I was, I was on the board of seven different companies at that time. I wanted to spend more time with my children and my family. So I took me nine months to leave as a good leaver, but I left corporate life and decided to set up a multi-generational series of companies and and an ecosystem to work with people that uh, I enjoy and love. Mm, Wow. And I think looking at the kind of scale of problems you've dealt with, I think uh, bad builders is probably nothing compared to kind of what you've worked on before. Now, I read, am I correct in saying that the company you worked for was founded by the now billionaire David McCourt? Yeah, it was uh, the first, uh, in fact, it was the second joint venture I was ever involved in. But uh, yeah, my first employer straight out of college or university in 1992 was a company called McCourt Kiwit International. David McCourt uh, was one founder. So I met David in 1992. In fact, he employed me. I was his first European employee. Wow. Way back 1992, he sent me to the US. I uh, continued my training with a very large, uh, one of the largest contractors in the world, Peter Kiewit and Sons. Interesting fact, actually, Peter Kiewit and Sons, they're based in Omaha, Nebraska, and their headquarters is called Kiewit Plaza. And they have a very famous resident in Kiewit Plaza, which is Warren Buffett. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway's offices are on the 15th floor or whatever it is of uh, Kiwit Plaza. So um, I had the privilege in 1993 of having dinner with with Warren Buffett as well. Um, I'm not wow. sure he remembers it quite like I do. I'm sure he has fond memories of you as well. I'm sure he does. I don't get a Christmas card, but there we go. What a small world. Because I remember, I think it was last, or maybe two years ago now in December, we had David McCourt speaking at our event and so when I saw his name in your thing, I thought, wait a minute, I recognize this guy. So yeah, an even smaller world. I've sat next to him and, and heard all his stories of, you know, the path to becoming a billionaire. So yeah. Okay. So wanting to spend more time with your family. Now, obviously at this point, you had a lot of experience in life and in business, but how did you know how to do property? Like at that point, how did you get started? Okay. Yeah. So it's a good question. So my background as an engineer, my degree was in construction. I've run construction companies and been involved in procurement and deployment and risk management. So I was always involved in real estate. In fact, we've developed about three and a half million square feet of real estate around the world. And I've had the the privilege of of seeing the the very best of business and also maybe some of the less savoury practices of business, particularly the construction industry around the world. I've seen how their approach to making profit tends to be based on, you know, if I want more profit, you're going to make less. You know, it's that very much, that's why it's such an adversarial industry. And I made a decision when when I was leaving corporate life that I wanted to create a different ecosystem. And, And I firmly believe that as entrepreneurs, we have the opportunity and should take the responsibility and accountability for defining the culture. And that culture for me, I've been involved in environmental and social governance programs for 15 or 20 years and equality and diversity programs. I believe that culture for us should be about creating shared value, You know, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes and understanding what great looks like to them. And there are solutions out there to the the most complex problems 
where everybody wins. And that's that creating shared value. And, and we measure that in our developments. We measure not just the profitability of the developer, but the profitability that all parties win in that development. And you can go extremely long, extremely far, and uh, uh, in very good company if you try and create shared value for everybody in your all, the, all your stakeholders. And I love that concept. It's served us very well over several decades now. I like that. And, I, you know, you got two strong whys there, you know, the shared value and family. And I think those are, are quite big motivators and quite big whys in, in anyone's journey when you're creating something way over, you know, profit or numbers or the kind of things that we tend to look at sometimes. So when you started out, you know, with this vision that you had, a lot of people starting in property, you know, with you know, corporate experience or without at any stage, I suppose, in their life, tend to go for vanilla biter lets, look at HMOs next, maybe, then some flips, maybe, then there's kind of a big sort of chasm, I think, between that and then new builds and commercial conversions. And I suppose what people would class as development. What did you start off with and why? Yeah, that's a good question. I was no no stranger to large telephone numbers, you know, very large deals under contract. Yet I did start with buy-to-lets and, and I've done a lot of buy-to-lets and you know, saved up the deposit, worked hard and acquired them. But I recognized that when I left corporate life, I was well taken care of in corporate life and I had to put tea on the table as well. And I had some very strong goals to create that multi-generational legacy. So I knew it had to be at scale. But the key substance for me, that key raison d'etre as I left corporate life was to take control of all of my personal economy. And that included my pensions. So I researched that really hard. I created a SAS pension. And that was one of the, uh, it remains to date, one of the most single catalytic decisions I made in transforming my property development um, strategy. I no longer buy buy-to-lets. I don't. I create buy-to-lets. And I create buy-to-lets through that transformation process of driving and forcing appreciation at the front end through commercial to residential conversions. So we've done about 70 to 80 million of, of those and around about 300 apartments and land developments as well. So always forcing that appreciation right in at the front end, de-risking the process I'm not a big risk taker. So it won't surprise you that the first deal that we did involved commercial to residential. Uh, it also involved our SaaS. Would you like me to just take you through some of the things that we achieved out of that first deal? Yeah, definitely. I think the listeners would love that. So I think one of the challenges many people find is actually finding property and, and we find commercial property. And if I explain how we found this first uh, commercial property, it was one of the first deals we did in our new SaaS pension, small self-administered pension scheme. And uh, my business partner, Nigel, who runs our land and acquisition team, he was walking through Colchester and he saw a very small commercial property for let. This is a real top tip for, for anybody maybe just starting in their journey or struggling to find deals. Look for properties to let. So this was a commercial property to let. You know, you'll often find that, uh, and we've seen this time and time again, that when you acquire a property, sometimes the vendor, the owner, doesn't know that they want to sell. And that seems like craziness, but that's the case. And it was uh, clearly the case here. 
it was to let. So somebody was in distress, so paying business rates, and the property was uh, available to let on the market. We approached the commercial agent and asked them, we said, look, we don't want to let it, but we would be interested in acquiring it if any properties in the surrounding area are also available. And they went back and said, well, funnily enough, the owner of the property also owns four others in the local area, and they happen to be all side by side. So uh, we said, well, would he be prepared rather than to let the whole lot? Would he be prepared to sell them? The answer came back, yes, for a million that kind of wasn't really on our radar, to be honest. So we always like to strike a good deal. So uh, within uh, within about six or seven days, we'd agreed on 620000 for the purchase of all five units. Now, as I mentioned, we're not big risk takers, and this was in a conservation area. So we agreed an exchange with a delayed completion subject to full planning permission to convert the uppers, the storerooms, the uppers of these five properties into residential. And we duly exchanged, we duly got planning, we duly completed, and we acquired this property in cash in our SAS pension, um, which was just fantastic for us you know, to be able to move that quick with our own cash. And uh, we then subsequently did a series, and I won't complicate it, but a leasehold um, split. So we split the freehold leasehold and I've put that in my SAS pensions book, the, the case study. But uh, to cut a long story short, we ended up with five commercial properties in our SAS pension that will stay there you know, forever, creating great yield. We created three residential apartments, which we hold in a limited company outside of our SAS, which in the last two years have already um, significantly appreciated. And the, the summary test here is that I spent 24, nearly 25 years contributing to my corporate pension. And all those contributions each month, each year, and all the returns over 24, 25 years, we doubled those in 24 months on this one deal. And that's the impact of firstly, knowing what you're doing. And secondly, you know, executing exceptionally well with access to your own funds. And, you know, we literally doubled my pension in two years that had taken me a quarter of a century to accumulate. Wow. I mean, that really highlights the power. Well, I suppose the power of one, having a SAS pension, but two, property versus a job. And of course, you know, that deal you went through would have been difficult, would have had its challenges. But wow, it really does highlight for people what you can do with the right knowledge, as you said, with the right structure, and of course, the deal and the money. Now, speaking of SAS pensions, let's talk about that, because obviously, it's been key to a lot of your developments, and you raise a lot of money through them. Give us the kind of, I don't know, the brief masterclass on what a SAS is and how you can use it effectively. Okay, yeah. So a SAS is a, a trust, and um, you can have between one and 11 trustee members. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to consider your existing pensions, be they defined benefit or defined contribution stakeholder schemes. Um, you can move your uh, funds into a SAS trust, and then you make your investment decisions. I mean, we've got a Metro Bank bank account, and I'll say that just because it's a standard bank account for our SAS trust. And then that gives you the the gravitas, the accountability, and the responsibility to make your investment decisions for your strategy. It has to be approved by HMRC, and the pension regulator is the overwatch. 
there are rules that you need to follow. So generally, most people would bring in a corporate trustee. But that's pretty much it, to be honest. The devil's in the detail, as there is in in everything. So do your own due diligence. It's not right for everybody. But you can then invest in gold. You could invest in stocks and shares. You can invest in commercial property. You can do loans. So we're not connected, Tej, in blood or business. So we could do a third-party unconnected loan to you, say. So you can see the flexibility of that collaborative environment. We can do a what's called a loan back. So we can loan from our SaaS to our own limited company, our own sponsoring company, which is incredibly powerful. We've just legally completed on two commercial property acquisitions earlier on this week. And one of those was, again, a piece of land with full planning that we acquired in cash in a limited company using a loan back from our SaaS. Now, to do, a, in this case, what was um, a third of a million pound loan back from our SaaS pension, do you want to hazard a guess as to what the cost of finance was for that? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. There's an unfair question. Um, 300 quid and 1.5% per annum. I was going to say 2.5, so I wasn't too bad. Wasn't far off. Compared to, you know, looking at, we do do use a lot of development finance, um, but the costs certainly rack up. You know, think the red book valuation, think legal fees, application fees, interest rates. And we we saved around about £110,000 on fees, on tax efficiency savings. I think this is where many people in property come unstuck. I'm not in property. I'm in business. And those businesses, and I have many, many businesses, they often have an underlying hard asset class of property. But I think people in property sometimes, it's a bit like when you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a nail. You know, people tend to think property, property, property. But but actually property is just the vehicle that gets you to where you want to be. I was having a chat with one of my mentees recently and it was their first strategy session and they have a, they've got first world problems. They've got a £200,000 salary. Uh, therefore, they're paying an awful lot of PAYE. So strategically, can you out, go out and strategically acquire commercial property, hold them in an LLP and take benefit of capital allowances to offset income tax? All of a sudden, your strategic objectives for property acquisition change, you know, because HMOs won't cut it in that environment or buy to lets or so it's very much horses for courses here. And uh, and that I work tirelessly with people to help them work out. And once they've got that, it takes the the millstone off their shoulder, takes the weight off because they've then got an economic equation, a personal economic equation. They understand tax efficiency, how things work. And that is an absolute game changer, totally enables people. They can see it with clarity. And then they've got a a runway, a roadmap laid out in front of them, well illuminated. And that's so powerful. Mm. So, you know, with a SaaS, I suppose for people listening, there's two main things that in sort of top level ways it could help them. One is they set one up themselves or with trustees in terms of their own pension. And they use that to loan to themselves, to other people. Alternatively, for people who, like, you know, me, for example, who have a small pension, because I've only been working for X many years, we could find investors um, who have SASs or who want to set them up, and they could potentially be our investors 
from their SaaS. So I suppose, is that right? And those are the two main ways listeners could utilize it. Absolutely. So you can lend to yourself, you can lend to other people, or you can maybe learn how to become investable yourself and attract uh, SaaS funders. Because once a, a SaaS trustee has challenged tradition, they've challenged tradition, they've opted out of the traditional pension environment. And the day the pension is set up, the SaaS pension is set up, and the money lands in the bank account, there's no fund manager there to deploy it. It's you. You have to then make choices, clear investment decision choices to invest. And everybody's different. You know, There's a different risk and reward appetite for every trustee because a, a SaaS isn't everything to some people. You know, it just sits as part of their overall wealth. Some people have no other wealth apart from their pension, and that's what they've got to live on. Um, whereas others, they might just look at their pensions for a certain part of their their investment strategy. Learning to walk a mile in a SaaS trustee's shoes is incredibly important. A, to decide if a SaaS is right for you, and B, so that you can possibly learn how to articulate a a property investment memorandum to a SaaS trustee to potentially attract investors. Certainly, I've been helping people for many years doing that. We do that. Most of our investors either come from limited company investments, high net worths, or or SaaS trustees. You and I spoke about this offline, but how much money have you raised from, let's not even make it sad, let's just say how much money have you raised from investors during your property career so far? Probably a close on twenty five million. I would have thought over over my career of of doing property investment. Wow, quite substantial. I mean, much of that has been paid back, and it it recycles because quite often, you know, investors, um, yeah, they do want to do want to go again, and and quite often they'll the investors all starts quite small. Yeah, you know, they won't invest everything they've got, and quite frankly, nor should they. But they'll start quite small. We have some investors who might start at, say, £25,000. They might have the ability to invest half a million, a million. But they'll start small and they'll see how you perform, how you communicate, how you make them feel at every stage of the investment, You know how you maintain that transparency, accessibility. Um, and they've been important hallmarks of how we've worked with and continue to work with many investors. And... Um, over the years, I've also seen how many investors, of course, everybody wants a, a good economic return, solid economic return um, with reasonable security as well. But if you seek to, to understand before being understood, you know, listen to people, listen to what they say. And that's why I, I don't go in for the kind of 30 second elevator pitch and, you know, these kind of uh, things that seem to swirl around the industry. Just get to know people, fellow members of the human race. I never, ever speak to potential investors. I just speak to people. And it's one of the greatest privileges I have is to speak with lots of people, have a chat with them, listen, understand their story, understand what opportunities they're looking at, try and support and help them. And many of them are looking for something else as well as an economic return. Maybe they've got some funds. Maybe they don't trust themselves yet with those funds to become a property developer. Um, so we do something called uh, Equa Earn and Learn, where people can loan, but also I can help them out. I, I might give them complimentary mentoring for a year, or they join our our mastermind. You know, you help them along the way. 
and that creates a wonderful community just stays with you know stays with you it's greater than the sum of the parts i'm really passionate about that and that, that's what we do within core academy yeah i think that's really well explained and it sounds kind of illogical but i think sometimes the more we look for something the less we find of it you know like if we're in business purely for profit chances are that's not going to happen but if we're in business to solve a problem or to create shared value like you're saying the profit's going to come money comes it's going to be big it's going to be bigger than if you're purely focusing on it so i think a lot of people get caught up in who's an investor are they investor no okay let's move on let's whereas i get the efficiency kind of that they want from that but like you said you just speak to people and they could be potential investors or they might not be but you're just speaking to people and that means that you know with that approach i think people are going to find more investors than they would by actually maybe pinpointing it which sounds illogical but i don't know i think that there's value there and what you said about investors starting small absolutely i couldn't agree more i've seen that myself where oh yeah i've only got you know this much to invest and then you know, four, three months later, hey, I've, I've got another deal. Are you, oh, yeah, here we go. Here's 100 grand. I'm like, what? You you said you only had this much. And I've had that sort of like a few times where it doubles or it triples or, it, you know, for every few months or every deal that's been repaid because they're like, well, they pay the interest. They paid it back. I like them. I'm, they're making money. So like you said, they'll just keep recycling. So the starting small is absolutely so normal. And I think it's quite reassuring for people to hear that you've raised tens of millions there, but people are still starting with 25 grand. So people don't be disheartened if you need 100 grand and someone comes to you with 10, because a lot of people start that way. I want to kind of give people as much as we can, maybe maybe a little masterclass on commercial conversions. Now, I'm obviously asking a lot um, for the kind of next half an hour, but what I want to do is because I know a lot of my listeners are going to be people who maybe have done buy-to-lets or are doing it and want to do it, HMOs. and But I'd say a lot of my listeners maybe haven't done commercial conversions or new build yet. Let's go straight into it. Finding commercial conversions. Now, finding a buy-to-let is you're on right move. You speak to agents, you go to auctions. They're obvious. A three-bed house, that's a buy-to-let. You know, end of. It's simple. When it comes to commercial and commercial conversions... Where do we start looking? And, and a broad question, but what are we looking for? So we're, we're looking to add value in everything we do. That's our starting point. Again, that creation of shared value philosophy. But if we can force appreciation in at the front end of a deal, and we find one of the best places to look is commercial property, and it won't surprise you that we start with commercial agents. Um, there are many ways and there's some great tools, you know, Land Insight, Nimbus Maps, tools like that, which will help us do that. But our number one area, which 90, and I can only speak from experience, you know, we've secured uh, almost 90 million pounds of GDV in the last uh, four and a half years, four and a half to five years. And 90% of that has come from commercial agents. Now, you know, if you walk a mile in a commercial agent's economic equation, they've got a fixed overhead and a variable top line. That's their business model. Because remember, we're in business, right? So they are not just looking for the best offer. They're looking for the offer which will take the deal over the finishing line. So they're looking for your professional credibility for you to not only put in the best offer, but also 
uh, to complete on that. And a key part of completing on it, the commercial agents know they've been around long enough, is have you got the ability and the wherewithal to attract bank finance normally and also the required private capital to complete on the deal? So your professionalism is absolutely essential. Various techniques and ways that will help you improve your chances. And that's thinking of others. If you think back to that example of the the commercial property that we uh, went to have a look at, that one commercial property that was for let, think what the agent was going to get out of that transaction. They were going to get one lettings fee. That's all they were going to get from the vendor. Now, because of our intervention, we had discussions with the agent and said, look, what we want to do with this is we don't want to let one property. We want to buy five. We then want you to put brand new full repair and insure leases on all five. We then want you to let them for the next 20 years. We then want you to also find the ASTs for the three apartments And we want you to then manage the ASTs, those three apartments, for again the next 20 years. Now, the difference between that model is a few thousand pounds the agent was going to get over lifetime with the existing vendor through to around about 130,000 pounds over the next decade with ourselves. So again, sometimes you have to put in a language the value that you perceive and the value that you bring to the table. And what value do we bring to the table? Well, we kind of bring the table, if that makes sense. I like that. Now, when it comes to adding value, again, if we compare it to buy to let, that is is very straightforward. Refurb, new carpets, new kitchen, blah, blah, blah. Everyone knows the story. When it comes to commercial, at least at first, it appears more complex. So when we're looking at you know commercial stuff, let's say shops with flats above it, or we're looking at a light industrial or an old bank, uh, an old office building, and I know you've done some of those. In those kind of examples, like tangibly, when I'm looking at that listing online or I'm walking around it, what am I looking for to add value? Yeah. So we're looking at the the risk profile, and that will almost certainly start with what it currently is, i.e. what planning use class it is. Uh, what size it is, the floor loadings, you know, the physical structure of the building. Can we partition it up? Windows, can we get light into the building? But the main risk will be what use class does it sit within? Does this mean we can uh, utilise permitted development rights or is this going to be full planning? And we will almost always give ourselves uh, the protection of conditional exchange Occasionally, we might use purchase options, but generally, we'll go straight to a conditional exchange. So we'll put an offer in, and it will be based on going to exchange of contracts. We think that gives a lot more assurance and surety for for the vendor. A quick, short, you know, three to three to four weeks to get to exchange, and then we can ring fence the risk. An example on on a development that we we completed on physically completed the construction and we hold many of those apartments as well near very close to my house actually uh, near just outside Guildford it was a property that again actually wasn't on the market at all it had been vacant for 10 years this was a fairly new build it's only 25 30 years old it'd been vacant for 10 years we found it we put an offer in ultimately we settled on the offer at uh, 2.2 million for the purchase 
And this is 10,000 square feet of B1A office, so it was permitted development rights. Uh, we put in a fully refundable deposit of £10,000, fully refundable. We went to exchange of contracts, fully conditional on getting permitted development rights to transform 10,000 square foot of prime commercial real estate into 22 apartments. They varied between 35 square metres and and just over 50 square metres. This was uh, going back a couple of years now. So £10,000 deposit, fully conditional on permitted development, and we asked the vendor to pay for permitted development as well. And we got all of those terms approved. So you can see um, we protect ourselves. We've worked a long, long time to create our what we call seed capital. You know, even though we we could put that level of seed capital in, no problem at all. Um, we're not going to put it in on a, uh, a non-refundable deposit. So that's the type of scrutiny on on risk that we manage. And we'll always have a great team. The the scale of projects we work on might be purchase price anywhere from a third of a million to to 10 million. Um, so a very, very wide range, but sometimes a bit like the great book by the German philosopher E.F. Schumacher, uh, small is beautiful. And that's the same with property. Sometimes it's the smaller ones that create the less headaches. Um, you can protect yourself going in, it might be a few hundred thousand to purchase, add a, a lot of value through the planning process, then the construction um, it's all about the value that it creates for you and your your stakeholders. So, um, yeah, those are some of the techniques that that we use to acquire commercial property, which is just purely adept for for that transformation. I mean, do you find vendors are more open to you know the methods you use to de-risk? Are they, are they kind of expecting it or used to it, or is it always a bit of a conversation, maybe or a bit of a battle to get them to understand why you're doing these things? We're we're always very transparent. We're, you know, the open hand is the tightest grip for us. Um, very transparent. If you're very open and you explain what you're doing, the cynical ones will say, yeah, but that gives you your cards away. Very rarely have we had that thrown back in our faces. Very rarely at all. So just let people know. And if if I say to you, if your building's on the market for a million pounds, and I say to you, it's not worth that, I'll give you 620. Or if I take an alternative approach and say, this is our strategy. This is what we do. And we've got a great track record of completing on projects like this. Our strategy would be to take the property after a short period for permitted development, we would then convert to X number of apartments. Here's my development analyzer. We use the Equor IDA. Um, here's our Equor IDA. I'll take them through that process. And as you can see, the most I can pay for your building with my strategy is 600,000. You're never calling somebody else's baby ugly. That never goes down well in society, does it? <laughs> and, and likewise with property, you know, you're not saying to somebody, your building's not worth. Because the reality is, if you've got a builder who sat there in cash, they maybe would pay a million for it. But their strategy might be to knock it down and build a 20-story tower block. You're just saying, for my strategy, this is the most I can pay. And that's very respectful. And you generally get nothing but praise. Thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your strategy and how it works. Found that incredibly insightful. Love your due diligence, by the way. On this occasion, I don't think it'll work for me. However, 
and then commercial agents will will be thinking, okay, look, there's a lot of business acumen here. I'll try and find these guys some something else. So it creates long term relationships, playing the long term game. I agree, and I think you know it's something I've seen work on all levels. You know, whether it's buy to let's just saying, look, here's why I can't offer this amount because you know, here's a breakdown of what it's going to cost and what the end value is, or to the extent when I'm offering on land, when I show them a whole pack and all the figures and everything, and they're like, wow, everyone else just sent an email. And I think people saying that, oh, it's going to kind of show your cards and all that. At the end of the day, most of these vendors just want to sale. You know, if they were developers, they'd be developing it. And so I think they really appreciate it, like you said, when they can understand it, because, you know, they can't, if you just say, here's my offer, they can refute it and say, well, where's your evidence? Doesn't mean anything. But when you prepare something, they're like, oh, okay, uh, you know, it's not going to work, but I see why you're offering that. And that's interesting. And it can lead to other things. Um, and agents, like you said, definitely, definitely appreciate that. So when looking for commercial conversions, uh, another big area that can be quite tricky to get right at the start is, well, what's it going to cost to refurbish this? Because Obviously, these commercial buildings are, are often, well, not often, but they can be built differently. They can have columns everywhere. They can have kind of industrial features that can be quite nice in residential. But, you know, basically, they're not built for resi. So how do you work out, like, how much the refurb cost is going to be? Do you do it per square meter? Or, like, how can people who are listening figure it out, at least roughly, to start calculating stuff? Yeah, I think it's a, a great question. Um Reminds me of a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, "You, you simply can't uh, make all. You can't live long enough to make all the mistakes you know, out there. You've got to bring in a team. And this is what commercial conversions and land developments do, because the scale of the property is a little bit larger. You've got the money in the deal to be able, to, and you should have more money in the deal to employ a professional team, and that'll be your planning consultant, your architect." Your design team. Uh, we employ a, uh, a quantity surveying company. In fact, that is so critical that we've actually invested in a, a quantity surveying company called Your QS Company. Um, so we'd bring somebody in like Jake, Jake Southers, and what he would do, he would do a floor layout plan. Um, he would do uh, an overlay. He would look at what type of construction. He would work with Nigel in our land and acquisition team and look at how we would structure uh, the deal, how many units, column centres, as you say, type of construction. Are we going to be putting a, an additional floor on, you know, a mansard roof? So it could be a blend of commercial refurb rates. It could be new build rates. We've just demolished a four-storey building uh, in West London, and, uh, and that's part of a 19 million GDB scheme, 57 units, put a brand new out the uh, out the ground, reinforced concrete uh, frame building up. All of these will attract a, a different price. We do tend to start off with uh, cost per square meter, cost per square foot rates for new build and refurbishment, but they'll always be the star rate items, the items that fall outside of that, you know, the windows, the roof, the lift, things like that. So getting a professional team in very early on, don't nickel and dime the development, you know, get very clear outline of costs, you know, no, nobody's trusting us to try really hard. You know, the secret to commercial conversions is making sure you've got that risk assurance framework where all your parties, all your stakeholders there, your professional team, 
they're not just bringing their expertise, but they're bringing, you know, between one and five million PI insurance with that. And let's face it, you know, hundreds of years of, of experience within their teams. Recent development we're doing, we we added up the the experience within our just first circle of professional team, and it was over 2,000 years of career experience brought to the table. And back to my point earlier on, when the banks loan us funds through development finance, they're not trusting Mark Stokes to try really hard. I mean, that is a key part to it, but they're trusting my business acumen to identify risk and to bring in the best parties who will be able to transfer, mitigate, and manage that risk. that That's the fundamental element there. Mm. And I know people are going to want to know this. So could you give us a very rough, for people listening, as a disclaimer, um, average or kind of figure people should use per square meter or per square foot when looking at you know commercial conversions? Because people are just going to want something to put in their spreadsheet just at this early stage. That will vary. For a commercial conversion, um, we might put in anywhere from 1150 to £1,350 uh, pounds per square metre. But again, it, just so many permutations of that. Uh, for new build, you can be anything from you know 1600 to 2000 plus, depending on the environment. It's a very close site, and I know you know that one in, in West London that we have at the moment. Yeah, that's very limited space. There's very little set down areas, very little parking, lots of traffic management involved compared to the one we completed on, or two developments we completed on last week. Got about a six million combined GDV, um, which is pretty much in the middle of a, a brownfield site in the middle of Surrey. And you could probably go and fit 60, 70 car parking spaces in there. You know, so there's uh, very different dynamics, but that would give you a, a reasonable spread. But um, I can't stress enough, get some decent money in your cost plan to employ a great architect design team and QS to help you with the commercial management. The bank will want to see that anyway. So you best equip and arm yourself. It's all about that, that anticipation and simulation of what's coming down the track. And most of our due diligence, and and that does include build costs, what are we simulating and anticipating? When we built the the EQUA Investment and Development Analyzer, the EQUA IDA, we are anticipating and simulating the RICS Red Book valuation. That's what we're doing here. And I won't say we never get a down valuation, but the last three valuations we've had have come in either online with what we're expecting or higher, because we understand exactly how a Rick's Red Book valuation works. Mm. And, you know, earlier on, you kind of touched on full planning versus permitted development. A lot of people talk about commercial and a lot of people love commercial because you don't have to deal with the um, interesting planning department that most, uh, most councils have. You can kind of get on with it as such. And you know, from like, well, before day one, you know, well, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. You can work things out with a lot more clarity, perhaps, um, and obviously save the back and forth and the costs and the time. For people starting out, would you advise they maybe avoid full planning at the start and go for things with PD? Or you, or do you think that actually, with the right team and risk management, full planning is is okay on a commercial conversion? I think the key difference is time. You know, time has a, a lot of money uh, attached to it. 
And it depends on your personal economic equation, really. If you're desperate to put tea on the table and, you know, you need to act uh, fairly immediately, the beauty of permitted development is you kind of know what you're getting. Uh, it's not a slam dunk, but, you know, it's a, a lot lower level of risk at, at the point of entry. But equally, some of those deals are possibly harder to find. So we have a, a blend in our portfolio of, of fairly quick wins and then some longer term plays, which might be a full planning permission. It might be green or brownfield sites, new build. Um, so having that blend, but you have to understand you know, what's important to you. Putting in tens of thousands of pounds of money on a planning that might take six months to two years to achieve when your personal economic economy suggests you need quick cash flow now, there's a mismatch there. So it's understanding and being very clear on what your strategic model is and then bringing that to bear. And that that's, I think most people do want cash flow. And let's face it, cash flow is an absolute imperative for any business or personal model. And that's why permitted development rights can be very effective indeed. Mm, absolutely. And Earlier on in the podcast, we spoke about you know funding, so using investors. Obviously, I think the easiest way to fund any deal is is with investors, with other humans. It's I find it's easier than dealing with a company or an institution. However, there are lots of options you know across the board in property for funding. You know, when it comes to commercial conversions, could you maybe give us an overview of the general types of funding available to people? And I think that one of the biggest questions that people are going to want to know is. How much money do we have to put in ourselves? What is possible with covering the refurb costs or covering the purchase costs? So maybe an overview of that would be really awesome. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we would separate that into, and we do that in our development analyzer. What is the what is the funding and the non-funding costs and what's the initial seed capital? So the initial seed capital would be what we would calculate would be required for a deal before the bank come in. So pre-legal completion. What's our commitment and what's our outgoing cash flow on a development? Legal fees, surveys, searches, planning, all those kind of fees. And that can vary from, you know, a few, few thousand pounds to a few tens of thousands of pounds. In our model, that seed capital, depending on how we work with our investors on legal completion, will be paid that seed capital back. You know, that's almost an investment uh, at the front end or we will keep that seed capital in alongside the uh, the private investors. How you fund the deal is going to be intrinsic to the appetite from the banks. You must know your economic equation, know how that deal is going to be funded from an investment perspective, because your commercial broker needs to know that. If your strategy is I'll bring in private investors for everything that the bank won't fund, then the broker needs to know that because some funders won't like that. Some will suggest, okay, well, that will be more 50 to 100% personal guarantees if you're not putting any of your own kind of skin in the game. And some just won't fund it. Um, if you're funding deals in holding company structures, again, some funders have, uh, have challenges with that. So the big tip there is pick a great commercial broker commercial finance broker pick a great one be open with them let them understand exactly what you're looking for so we don't sign any on-demand clauses for instance that's what took a lot of developers out uh, 10 or 12 years ago um, so we have very specific requirements there 
and we also have very specific requirements from investors perspective um we will have multiple investors on a scheme so it's not a debate it's not a conversation you know we're we're not doing individual negotiations and we'll agree a set of terms with one investor and then a different set of terms with another the the latin words pari pursue are really important all our investors on one scheme on one development will be pari pursue they all stand on the same footing equal footing i won't negotiate a separate set of terms with you than i wouldn't have done with another investor and imagine how comfortable that then feels on a site visit knowing that all investors are on the same terms the moment you start negotiating different things different people it becomes bespoke and it becomes very difficult to corral all those parties together um with the bank as well so a little bit more of a detailed answer to the question there but you know the entry costs for seed capital could be you know a few thousand to a few tens of thousands uh development finance works well for us we call it vanilla finance i just first charge uh the security package of a development funder is uh you want to first charge on the property the first floating charge on the company which is a debenture and then also a uh, a set of personal guarantees from the operational directors of the company as well yeah that makes sense so people get and you're probably going to have to anyway but get independent legal advice before you sign some of these because Obviously, once you do a couple of them, you know you're signing your whole life away. But at the start, make sure you understand exactly what you're putting your blood to or your signature to. It's a great, great point that I've had um, various people call me over the years to try and unravel problems as a, a troubleshooter. And when um, in property circles, joint ventures are, are quite often seen. And, and I've had to unravel joint ventures over the years that have not gone well. Um, and one of the areas where you'll see people giving um suggestions that what a great way to have a joint venture you know you've got the time and they've got the money but i'm going to stick personal guarantees right in the middle of that um if i was an investor and i'm putting all my money in and you're putting the time in but you're not worth a carrot you know can you see where personal guarantees might lie between us and and the exposure of the one that's actually doing the work can't actually carry the burden of personal guarantees so um there's lots of interesting areas on how joint ventures should be structured but maybe that's subject for another podcast in the future <laughs> no definitely i think i mean i actually have a po- have a podcast so people are listening go back and find that actually with litigation solicitor who deals with when jvs go wrong so i kind of went right in the deep end there and, and gave you the dark side of jvs uh so this year and, and last year has obviously been a, a crazy time for everyone in, in every single business that could ever exist. You know, the high street claims that it was dying before Corona. And if anything, Corona's, you know, people are saying it's increased the speed at which it's dying because, well, I can sit here on my ass and get pretty much anything to my door by like 10 p.m. tonight or even quicker, which is, you know, I suppose it's the way the world is advancing. What are your thoughts on opportunities and threats, very corporate title there, in the commercial property space in 2021? Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of opportunity and there always will be when there's turbulence and change in the market. That has to be uh, censored with a certain degree of caution. As you said, there's a huge transformation. Many retail shops are now Amazon shop windows. 
and a lot of online shopping. I know we have dozens of brown boxes seem to appear every week at our doorstep. But that means somebody's feeling some pain there and uh, we're creating shared value and we're looking for opportunities to uh, to alleviate some of that pain for people. Just because you could doesn't mean you should. You know, you've got to be very careful. The deal might work uh, in theory on a spreadsheet, but take a step back. Look at the environment. Look, is that the right area? There's also a, a gut feeling is a key part to due diligence. And I think many people forget that as well. You know, no liking the area. It could be the main high street and potentially you could change uh, retail units under PD to, to residential, but just take a step back. In theory, you could, but will that actually work? So change, lots of opportunity. We have never seen in the last five years the type of opportunities that are coming to our doorstep at the moment. We're very, very selective indeed. But for those looking to to move into uh, commercial ac- acquisitions and um, you know, commercial conversions, um, you know, now is the time to, to really learn your craft and uh, and really understand the core skills of, of managing risk in that environment. Mm, that makes sense. And I recently saw you post on Facebook two deals. I think there's one new build and then one new build commercial. Could you tell us a little bit about one of those or both of those? I think people love hearing case studies and figures. So it'd be really cool to, to learn more about them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got this uh, development uh, through a commercial agent full planning permission on the site and the, the planning was for nine new build houses and one new build uh, about four thousand square foot commercial unit so um structure 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 is everything for us how we structure the deal we make our money on the way in and uh, not during and just at the back end we make it by structuring on the way in so we separated this out the the nine new build houses we bought that in a limited company with traditional, you know, vanilla development finance, you know, standard development finance, um, low cost, and it works very well for us. Um, so, uh, and we've also um, used second charge to bring in private investors who who I know, like, and trust, and built a relationship with. So we've got our wonderful investors on that scheme, um, and we literally picked up the keys um during during this month so um that's just starting now we structured very differently the new build commercial um the, it's a piece of land and we're going to build it into uh, a, a new build commercial premises we're going to sublet to 10 local sme uh, offices um so that'll be a, a great scheme we'll hold that forever as well now we could have acquired that in our sas pension funded it with a SAS pension and held it forever. But what we decided to do there was we're going to acquire it in a limited company. We're going to use the SAS loan back, and we're going to loan back at very low cost of funds, which I indicated earlier on. So we've in effect, we've bought it in cash with our loan back, which takes the first charge. So our SAS is the bank, and then we have... Uh, investors, just a small amount of investors coming in on a second charge basis for the build element. So there'll be two developments. They'll take a year to complete broadly, and we're going to hold all of them. Our predominant strategy is to hold all the assets that uh, that we create. Mm, wow. And 
were these two on the market, off the market? How did you source them? A good question. So we paid uh, in total about one and a half million um, for, for the two parcels of land. They were off market. And a question I often get asked is, well, why would a commercial agent put these off market? Why wouldn't they put them on the market? Well, sometimes, uh, and in this particular case, uh, the party who we acquired from, they had a lease option on the property and the lease had expired, but they were holding it together through goodwill. Um, it had taken them two or three years to get planning. Got a great relationship with the vendor, but things were starting to get a little bit, little bit frayed and uh, they needed to hold the deal together. So the commercial agent couldn't actually put this on the market because as far as the head vendor was uh, concerned, um, this party was going to acquire it and build it out. There was a discreet conversation between the middle party and the commercial agent. Can you find us a party who will do this deal, who's as good as their word, they'll give us a fair price for it, and once we shake hands on it, they'll get the deal done. And fortunately, the relationship we had with a commercial agent meant that they, they gave us a call, and that's exactly what we did, and we delivered on that promise. Wow. And I suppose it's things like that which having the knowledge to understand and notice and solve, whether it's you know paperwork exercises or whether it's a physical constraint or issue of a site, is where I hear a lot of guests on my show make money. or you know, That's where they make the deals is essentially knowing how to fix these problems that a lot of people, and I'm not saying this is one of those, but where a lot of people just see it and say, nah, not for me, can't deal with it. And that could be something simple, subsidence, not weed, or it could be some crazy crazy legal issue but if you know how to solve it then uh, you know how to solve it right so mark question for you not property related if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive who would it be and what would you eat <laughs> very good question very good question so i would like to have a my second meeting with warren buffett uh, i'd like to revisit that conversation that I had with him in 1990, end of 92-93. Uh, I think that would be a very, very special conversation indeed. It certainly would be for me. What I did, I, I wrote a, a book called Advice to Your Younger Self, and it doesn't directly answer your question, but I've always wanted to help and inspire the next generation. And rather than have a course or something like that, I wrote a book and I reached out to 49 other people. So there are 49 chapters in this book, and people wrote a chapter on what advice would they give themselves if they were back in their teenage years, you know, given all the experience they've now got. And what a wonderfully eclectic set of pieces of advice um, that they would give. So rather than meeting, you know, one individual, you know, that gave me an enormous uh, amount of value and insight, and in fact, for everybody to truly understand. Yeah, that type of skill and lessons learned. In terms of what I would eat, do you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to try a real master chef in vegetarian cooking. I'm not vegetarian, but I'm fascinated with the concept. Never really put myself to that task. So I, I would like uh, to have a, a, a lovely vegetarian meal and, and just experience that and see what it's like. I like that. And I think I'd definitely be down for that as well, because I'm not vegetarian either, but yeah, I would like to taste a master vegetarian. Yeah, that would be really good. I like that. See, I, li I like questions like this. It makes me hungry as well. But um, So, Mark, the last question to you is, what are your goals, whether it's personal, 
property, whatever it is, for 2021? So I've got a number of clear goals. Um, one is to continue the work of creating that multi-generational legacy for, for my children. And we have them as shareholders in the, in the company and also uh, increasingly with our SaaS as well. Uh, we have a, a business which uh, called Cornerstone Place, which is creating 10 million homeless bed nights over the course of the next decade. And we expect to get many of those under contract this year. Um, so, so that's a great way of us giving back. We've recently secured a large development, about 12 million GDV. And we can all give ourselves a happy high five that, you know, we've taken this awful property which had lots of destitution, habitual drug use. We took out 1,500 hypodermic needles. Uh, So we're taking a a grotty building and we're turning it into lovely apartments. Well, that's great. But from a societal impact perspective, all we've done is we've kicked the the can down the road of the, the drug use and we've moved it to another part of the town. Now, I can't solve all the the drug issues and the issues of homelessness in that particular town or city. So this is akin to carbon offsetting for us, creating cornerstone place, enabling the alleviation of street homelessness. And that's using our commercial skills and entering into some pretty well-structured leases with charities and those that can provide that support and the funding. So creating those 10 million homeless bed nights over the next 10 years and then continuing to provide what I really love is that support to management teams. I've been a non-exec director for well over a dozen years and I've mentored people for nearly 24 years. So continuing to support the management teams who uh, we've put business investment into and to our mentees. So, so they're my, that's what keeps me busy. And you never know, I might write a, a sixth book later this year as well. Fantastic. And look, if anyone anyone listening wants to get hold of Mark, please look at the show notes. All of his social media links are in their website. Everything is in there. So click on it and say hi uh, and do check out books. They're all on Amazon, aren't they, Mark? They are. Yes. Amazing. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the Tedge Talks podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.